0: Almost like when I got hit, like the old me just kind of like died in that accident, if you will, because like it, it truly created an entirely different paradigm shift in how I saw life and what I was doing. And part of that, which I will share because it was what I advocate, like the epiphany, right? Like helping people move forward in any aspect of life, there's normally a shift in a belief. Like if you want to have a different life, you can't have the same life living the same personal reality, right? The same personality. You have to think differently in order to live differently. And I remember I was pretty banged up. Thankfully, nothing was broken, but I was getting adjustments and e-stem on my shoulder and ultrasound and chiropractic adjustments and all that jazz. The motorcycle was my only mode of transportation because all my stuff was still in a pod out in San Diego. So I'm homeless at that point in time as well, but not due to anything except for getting hit on the motorcycle. So I'm limping down the street and of course it's raining because you know, it has to be raining. Right. (laughs) But I had like, I had my raincoat up and you know, the the collar around my neck and I'm complaining about life. And I don't remember exactly what I was saying, but none of it was positive and most of it was directed at God. And I had a thought that literally stopped me in my tracks. And I just kind of let my head drop and I shook my head and I kind of laughed and I, I looked up into the rain and I was like, okay, dad, because the thought was, that totally changed my life, right? Like I was still busted up. I still didn't have a car. I was still out to 6 six-figure jobs. But the thought that redirected me then and since was, I wonder how much my dead father or my paralyzed stepfather would give to walk in the rain one more time, right? And my world shifted on a dime. I let my jacket drop. I looked up into the rain. I kind of like, laughed and and giggled uh, despite the world around me all the rest of the way to my chiropractic traction east end the whole nine yards so it was just a shift in belief and it happened that fast
1: welcome back nod pod thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of chasing heroin before i forget I'm super excited to let you guys know that our episodes are now also available on video. So posted to YouTube, today's episode is already up. The YouTube channel is same, Chasing heroin. And moving forward, all of our episodes will be posted to YouTube as well. So if you guys would like to watch the episodes, they will be over there. In addition to being able to listen to them on Spotify, Apple, everywhere else. Let me know if you guys are into this idea because I love the video idea and I can actually upload it to some more platforms too. So let me know if you guys are watching and if you like the video idea. Today's episode is amazing. I learned so much very similarly to last week with Dr. Petrasek. Today I interviewed Dr. Chad Davis. He's a PhD and he describes himself as a mental remodeler. He uses a variety of therapeutic modalities to help people find, quote, a life that you don't wish to escape from. So his idea around addiction and life in general and stress and trauma is that we can change our life by reframing our beliefs. And he talks about the four pillars of health, how to manage anxiety. He actually gives an example or an analogy that I've been using in my classes all week. It like blew my mind when he said it. This is another one that you guys are probably gonna wanna take notes for. He also wrote the book, The 12 Steps 2.0 wake up and smell the coffee about the very outdated incurable disease model which we will talk about on the show i recommend you guys go to his website and just kind of look around he's got like the coolest information up about like places on the planet where they live the longest and have the most stress-free life and what they do there and he's just got a lot of really cool stuff on his website that i highly recommend you guys go check out so i think you guys are going to love this episode you're going to want to take notes and as always nod pod please let me know what you think of the episode Hello, everybody. Hello, Nodpod. Welcome back to another episode of Chasing Heroin. My name's Janine. I'm an addict. My sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. And actually, I said it funny. I'm nervous because the man I'm talking to doesn't love the identification. So I'm going to restart. My name is Janine. I'm an addict in recovery. My sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. And unfortunately, Mr. Narcan Nate is not with us today. You guys can give him shit. He's stuck in traffic. So we don't have Nate, and he's really bummed. But he called and he gave me a couple of questions and comments for the show, too, because he was actually really excited to speak with you on this episode. So you guys all DM him and tell him he needs to start leaving earlier. But, anyways, I'm so excited. I have Dr. Chad Davis with us on the show. He is the author of the book 12 Steps 2.0. Subtitle You guys are going to love this. Wake up and smell the coffee about the very outdated incurable disease. Model that we all know, obviously, is twelve step. Hi, Chad. How are you?
0: Doing very well. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Do you prefer what? How should I address you? You know, Chad is
0: fine. Okay, Chad is fine.
1: But you are a PhD, which is super, super impressive, and I love how you got there.
0: uh, It was a jaunt for sure.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about how you got there little bit about you and how you got into this because I really like your story and I love the way that I feel you were called to this mission. So why don't you explain to my audience how you came to be here with me?
0: Okay, so... It all started in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> uh, it truly does feel like a, uh, a different world. I grew up a little rough, um, although it's it's very similar to many that I've worked with over the last 14 years. In a nutshell, I've had four different fathers. First one was sexually abusive. Second one was an alcoholic. Third one wasn't much of anything, but my mother tried uh, suicide during that transition, And the fourth, although we get along very well now, is one of the reasons I left home at like 16 and continued to just bounce around the country. During that process, I went to 16 different schools, three different high schools in as many states. I've literally lived coast to coast from West Palm Beach, Florida to San Diego, California, and over 70 addresses in between. And that does not include the five different times I was homeless or the times where I was just in somebody's back room or couch or floor or, or whatever the case may be. Getting to where I am now was a stroke of fate. I was hit by a little old lady in a minivan in Tennessee because I used to do like like high-end security, regular security. Like I was I was waiting to be picked up by either uh, Dynacor or Gavin D. Becker and continuing with that path. And then when I was hit on my motorcycle, which is an entire other story, I came cross country from San Diego to East Tennessee on a bright red Ninja, saddlebags and a backpack, but when I got hit, I was hurt and like, couldn't continue to do what I was doing. And literally that day, one of them accepted me and the next day, the other one accepted me. And I only had like a a week or two to report and I couldn't even break a 45 pound bar. So both of those went out the window, which is an interesting story in itself, but that landed me in East Tennessee. That is not where I planned to be or whatever. And that also changed my trajectory in what I was doing and that opened the door, if you will, to psychology by virtue of getting into uh, helping people in recovery. That's kind of the, the initial step of a little bit about me. And then, yeah, I didn't set out to become Dr. Davis, and I definitely didn't set out to help people in addiction. That was not my initial trajectory by any means.
1: Okay, so you referenced being homeless and being in back rooms a few times, and I know that the terminology that I use may be a little bit different than what you use. In fact, I was reading your book, and guys, the first thing I I asked him on the phone, I went, uh, "Yeah, you're in recovery, right?" And I'm reading his book, and he's like, "I hate it when people ask me if I'm in recovery." And I was like, "Oh shit!" That's literally the first thing I asked. So forgive me if any of my traditional questions, because I fully respect your point of view, which is that a recovered life is really authored by the person, right? Like we, we are agents of what a recovered life looks like. So please know that I fully support and respect that. So if I accidentally use a different term or something, it's, it's like I said, accidental. Before you got hit by the car, had you been someone that struggled with various substances? Had you been homeless and stuff leading up to that? Or this kicked off that part of your life?
0: No, that was, um, the homelessness was not due to amazing life choices and clear head and full accountability to myself and the world around me. I was, I'd been a bouncer for 15 years, a uh, bartender, DJ, and so I was always around the club drugs. I was always around the alcohol and I didn't really have like, especially like, you know, in helping people today, like one of my first questions is, you know, what is your drug of choice? If you were on an island all by yourself and that's where you were going to stay for the rest of your life, like what would you have to have with you? Because that tells a lot about the person, but I didn't really have a drug of choice. It was just club drugs because that was the most available. And yes, I struggled with drinking too much, staying faded out way too often, and that ended up to homelessness a couple different times. Okay, but it's some of the uh, some of the homelessness was uh, just how life happened to unfold as well. It wasn't necessarily a direct reflection of of using. I just put myself in poor positions as well. <laughs>
1: okay, so when you get hit by the car, after that, what happens after you get hit by the car? Let's start with that.
0: So that was the biggest transition into uh, where I currently am, my current version of life. It's almost almost like when I got hit, like the old me just kind of like died in that accident, if you will, because like it, it truly created an entirely different paradigm shift in how I saw life and what I was doing, and part of that, which I will share, because it was what I advocate, like the epiphany, right? Like helping people move forward in any aspect of life. there's normally a shift in a belief. Like if you want to have a different life, you can't have the same life living the same personal reality, right? The same personality. You have to think differently in order to live differently. And I remember I was pretty banged up. Thankfully, nothing was broken, but I was getting adjustments and E-STEM on my shoulder and ultrasound and chiropractic adjustments and all that good jazz The motorcycle was my only mode of transportation because all my stuff was still in a pod out in San Diego. So I'm homeless at that point in time as well, but not due to anything except for getting hit on the motorcycle. So I'm limping down the street. And of course it's raining, because you know it has to be raining, right? <laughs> Every good a- story
1: starts with a guy limping in the rain often in Tennessee. <laughs> like, so there you go. Yeah. Somewhere in the bus yeah. south. And I'm from Georgia, so I can say that. And Nate, I believe, is from East Tennessee. So he would back me up on that if he were here.
0: Ah, uh, see, there you go. Yeah. But I had like I had my raincoat up and, you know, the, the collar around my neck and I'm complaining about life. And I don't remember exactly what I was saying, but None of it was positive, and most of it was directed at God. And I had a thought that literally stopped me in my tracks. And I just kind of let my head drop, and I shook my head and I kind of laughed, and i I looked up into the rain, and I was like, "Okay, Dad." because the thought was that totally changed my life, right? Like I was still busted up. I still didn't have a car. I was still out two six-figure jobs. But the thought that redirected me then and since was, I wonder how much my dead father or my paralyzed stepfather would give to walk in the rain one more time, right? And my world shifted on a dime. I let my jacket drop. I looked up into the rain. I kind of like laughed and, and giggled uh, despite the world around me, all the rest of the way to my chiropractic traction, east down the whole nine yards. So it was just a shift in belief. And it happened that fast that is part of like what I've seen. And that's why I don't believe some of the stuff that uh, is preached, not good jazz. So that was, that was a shift in my own life. And that was a shift in understanding of healing and recovery and whatever you want to call it. I was no longer a victim, right? Like I was no longer a victim of my circumstance. I was still somebody else's dream where I was in life is still what somebody else was praying for hoping for fighting for and that's a big shift
1: that's a huge shift and actually that's why that's a great example. That's why, because one of the things that Chad talks about is not loving the identifying as an addict at the top of a 12-step meeting. And I had this massive shift that the audience has heard me talk about before at about 90 days. I was a heroin addict for a long time. And at about 90 days, I was doing this gratitude meditation. And I was on the deck of this, what I thought was like this crappy, sober living, smoking other people's cigarettes, you know, you know, like the butts of other people's cigarettes. And I was doing this meditation and I finished the gratitude meditation And I realized that I wasn't dope sick and I got really overwhelmed with this feeling of not being dope sick, which is an opiate addict thing, right? You get sick if you don't have it. I I know you know that. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not dope sick. And I've been dope sick for so long or just like the struggle to not be sick. And then I realized there was like this really nice view out in front of me and I saw it and I thought, wow, that's really pretty. And my thought was that changed everything was that didn't just appear. I just couldn't see it before. Followed by, holy shit, did my heroin addiction leave me better able to see all of the blessings that I have in my life, which are many, and that I couldn't see prior to my addiction. And so my entire shift around being an addict changed. And I'm super duper proud to say, I'm an addict in recovery. I'm super proud. So for me personally, identifying as an addict is more empowering than anything else. My favorite thing about me is that I was a heroin addict. It's my favorite thing about me. It's like, I love it. And so for me, when I say it, it's not, it doesn't feel like I'm identifying with something negative. But I know that that's one of the things that you don't love about 12-step. And I say don't love because you've also made it clear that what works for you works for you, right? Before we even started recording, you said that. And so if 12-step works for people, you're not going to say don't go, obviously.
0: Right, wear it out. If it's working, wear it out.
1: So one of the early things that you say, which I love, is that no recovery program is complete without a fitness component. I love that. And I agree with that so fucking wholeheartedly. I just owned a spin studio that I sold recently and I still teach. I taught this morning, actually. I love it. And fitness and teaching changed my life. Talk about that. Why you think that that's a necessary part of a well-rounded, comprehensive recovery program.
0: Sure. Fitness and nutrition is, number one, they are half of the four pillars of health, right? Move well, eat well, sleep well, and then relax well are the four pillars of health and functional medicine. So fitness and nutrition are half of the pillars that are needed just for a healthy life, right? Like more or less mental health. It was my master's thesis and it was still The amount of motivation I had to prove that I was right is staggering, but (laughs) my master's thesis was in part a, eh, to a lot of the people that said what I was talking about was not only not true, but detrimental to the patient. So to prove my points, all of the research out there that most people in early recovery and definitely most people in active addiction are malnourished from either a borderline level to extreme levels of malnutrition. Well, we know that when you're malnourished, when there's a lot of environmental toxins in your system, the cognitive process is incoherent, right? Like the irony that most people can relate some form or fashion to like the old frying pan commercial, right, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, any questions? Most people get that, yet they want people into recovery to think like they think. They want you to think logically. They want you to think about consequences. They want you to think about, well, your actions, what you're doing right now isn't aligning with being healthier. Be like, well, reference the commercial. That's why I'm not thinking that way, right? <laughs> like, cognitive performance is gone. Your ability to assess big things versus little things is extremely compromised. Emotional regulation is non existent, right? Like, all those things are in the way. So, truly like, and it's not just like you're in balance, right? Like that gets thrown around all the time. And it's not just an imbalancing. It is truly a, there was a neuroscience book that basically s- phrased it like this, like your brain is still giving signals, but it's like a dyslexic auctioneer that could even be talking in a foreign language to the rest of your body, right? Like the information, the flow of information is compromised, broke down, incoherent. So doing anything, fitness and good nutrition to help rebalance your biochemicals and neurochemicals to get out of the chronic stress, to get your dopamine high again, to be able to truly function, like remember, right? Like pay attention, remember, be able to apply what you learned and remember what you learned is imperative if you're wanting anybody to learn new things. Right. Like, I mean, we know how important a good meal is before a kid goes to a test. Right. Like, so why wouldn't anything that involves learning, like to my point, like if you're wanting people to learn differently, then make sure that their learning is is on a maximum level.
1: So I freaking love what you just said. When you come in from active addiction, your brain is scrambled and. It is obviously related to not sleeping well, not eating well. There's a lot of stress in your life typically because your addiction is like, you know, causing stressful situations. People are mad at you. You might be broke. And so eating well and working out can help you get back to that place of cognitive awareness so that you can help yourself sooner. So what would you recommend in a rehab or fitness or a facility setting would you recommend in your ideal world in your perfect facility would you have people start walking soon or just have some sort of fitness available or mandatory
0: so yes it would need to be mandatory just to start the habit cuz i want to preface all of this with a story of like why more people don't because i didn't understand that right cuz like i also have the personal training background of 20 plus years so helping people change bad habits to healthy habits is something that also helps in in helping people with recovery. But humans are humans. Even people that aren't in recovery, don't have mental health issues, struggle to not have pizza and beer over the weekend, right? Like that's just a human thing. I would ask people in early recovery, right? Like I would talk to them like, so having a glass of water, just one, just start your day with a glass of water. It helps with the mind, cognitive performance mood stabilization energy everything just one glass even if you just had it to start the day with it is amazing for you but water tastes too bad i'm like how many stories have i heard about oh my god this drug was horrible you snort it you taste it for days this other stuff whatever like but water tastes too bad stories of you know walking 27 miles uphill both ways with no shoes on in the snow but you won't walk around your block because it'll help you sitting around zoned out all day long, but you won't meditate for three minutes on purpose. And I would ask over and over and over and genuinely looking for an answer. I'm like, why is it that outside of those doors you're the fucking terminator inside these doors? You don't seem to have any idea how you're going to accomplish any of these little bitty tasks. And I really didn't get it. And thankfully one day, one of the guys that was kind of like my poster child, if you will, like he was doing everything that I talked about and he was in there and he's like, Chad, man, he's like, he's like, I have your answer if you want to hear it. And I was like, yes, please like enlighten me. He's like, well, you know, I love you. And he's like, you know, I am here today in part because of a lot of the stuff that you talk about. I do it. I have my family do it. I have friends do it. I have coworkers do it. He's like, but he's like, brother, to apply what you're talking about." I have to want to be alive tomorrow. And that hit me like a like an anvil, right? Like it truly it sat me back in my seat and I was just like, "Wow, I revamped how I started talking to people. I revamped my entire therapeutic approach based on that true answer to that question that when they are still that far into survival, when they they're still struggling that much to love themselves like that loving themselves is so far away that they can't even conceive it. This other stuff works. Yes, and I'll I'll talk to your specific to your question about like what would be the perfect thing, but like it would need to be mandatory because until you care about being here tomorrow, self-care is just a foreign concept. So, in a perfect world on Chad's ranch, like I've created this, like what I would do, For 30 days, just live again. Get up in the morning, eat a healthy breakfast with real food, not stuff out of boxes. Be in the sun, drop stress, breathe, watch clouds. Like, no therapy, maybe some kumbaya type groups, but like nothing on education because their brain's not ready yet. Just walk around, touch the earth, breathe the air, lay in the sun and literally recharge for 30 days. Then some yoga, some meditation, some stretching, some light exercise. And that can be anything from maybe you like shooting hoops. Maybe you want to play some volleyball. Maybe you want to play ultimate Frisbee. Maybe you actually want to throw some weights around, but have it be based on your passion. Maybe you want to swim, but move 30 minutes every day, right? Now combine that with three to five good healthy meals, lots of real water, not, everybody's like, can I drink Gatorade? (laughs) Gatorade's better than not drinking anything, but no, like in this setting, no, you're going to drink water. You can add lemon juice to it. You can add lime juice to it. You can add whatever to it, but like it needs to be water. And then when you, as I kind of advocate, like once you get you out of the way, once you get the stuff that's in you, that's keeping you from succeeding out of the way, Then we can start working towards like, what's the real issue?
1: Okay. I love that because some of my audience is still actively using, wanting to stop. Some of my audience is kind of off and on. They use sometimes. And I love that because I want specifically those people to, you know, people that are still kind of in and out to be welcome here because it's a process. You know, and everybody's goals are different, but some people have, you know, 10 years that are listening. But what you just said, I think is really good to know coming back from any sort of stressful situation, even in quote, sobriety and recovery. You know, like I just sold my business and it was so stressful. It was one of the most insane things I've ever gone through in my entire life. You're smiling. (laughs) It was crazy. It was crazy. The escrow process and it was just insane. A lot happened afterwards. I did take a little time. To like sleep in and cause I'd kind of been running the business on adrenaline for a while. It was a gym in California. My audience is probably rolling their eyes right now. I talk about this all the time. But it was a gym in California and there was a lot of you know, it it was challenging for us here with regulations, et cetera. And so I'd been running on adrenaline for a long time. And then the sale was really weird too. The sale was kind of shitty. And so then after that, and I felt kind of losery at the time. Because I was like, look at you sitting on your ass. You know, your husband went through this too. He's still going to work every day. He's in construction. He's got a tough job, you know, and here you are like sleeping in. And, you know, like I took a while to get back into the place where I was teaching only because he made me. Fortunately, I've got my husband who's supportive and he made me. He was like, do not go back yet. Stop. But I would have because I felt like I needed to move quicker, you know, But what you just said makes sense. So after some sort of event that just kind of knocks you on your ass, there should be a movement to get back towards the four pillars that you mentioned. What are the four pillars again? Can you say those again?
0: Yes. And what we're talking about is the fourth one. So move well, eat well, sleep well. And to mental health, sleeping is more important than fitness and nutrition combined. And the last one is relax well. You must take time to recharge, you must take time to de-stress.
1: And what would that look like for someone that has a full-time job? Would that be taking a full day off to do kind of nothing? What would that look like for someone?
0: So I can write an entire book on just stress because it is when people say, well, this person's stressed. Well, this stressed me. Partially stress is misused in our world, but it's definitely misunderstood. Stress is perceptual. Stress is compounding. There is physical stress, emotional stress, chemical stress, environmental stress, right? So it can be compounding not just in, well, I've got a lot of stuff going on. It can also be compounding in... I don't know if I can do all this stuff. Now, my own assessment of my abilities are stressing me out. I could have heavy metals um, or toxins in my water, in my air. I could be in a poor social setting. I could be struggling to survive. All of those are going to be adding stress, right? Now, use a substance on top of that. And that is literally creating another chronic stressor, even if the world is great, which is people are like, well, I just smoked to, to calm down. I'm like, you realize you're still toxifying your system with a chemical. You're still keeping your system in chronic stress. Even though you feel relaxed psychologically, you are still chemically taxing your system, which is still perpetuating your issue. So how to de-stress is going to be very specific to that person and what they perceive as like, what do you need to de-stress from? Do you need a toxic cleanse? Maybe you're not super stressed emotionally, but maybe you have a lot of heavy metals or toxins in your water or food. Maybe you're just in a toxic environment, maybe literally like a weekend away just to be able to catch your breath and be you without being judged seven different ways from Sunday for how you choose to live your life. Maybe it is de stressing, could be finally asking for help to help clear some of the stuff off your plate. De stressing can simply be like literally taking 60 seconds three minutes to just just breathe. Engage your parasympathetic nervous system. Put your feet on the ground and be like, yes, this is where I'm at. I'm not where I was just worrying. I'm not where I've been dwelling about my regrets. I am actually sitting right here and right here isn't too bad. I'm safe. I'm not actually being attacked and that can de-stress you having a really good meal and enjoying the meal instead of wolfing it down in between project A and project B or driving between, you know, your fourth and fifth client of the day or whatever, right? Like truly taking the moment to live and not just exist is my version of de-stressing.
1: Okay. And I love that, that that would be different for everybody based on, you know, what the factors are in your life that are stressful. Yeah, 100%. So let's talk about the genetic question around addiction as a disease. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you're starting to laugh. I'm sure you've gotten a lot of pushback on this.
0: But have thousands and thousands of discussions, thousands and thousands of debates, hundreds of papers all on this very topic. Yes.
1: But I think what you're saying is still pretty close to the idea because you, you reference a statement that I love. Genetics loads the gun. Environment pulls the trigger. I think that navigates the line because you also talk about in your book and I love your book because it gets into like neuroplasticity and the brain. And I love like neuroscience and learning that kind of stuff. That's a huge part of my recovery too, as I've tried to understand what it would look like to build a life that I'm not running away from and how I can cognitively implement things that I'm learning. Right. With that kind of stuff with neuroscience. And so I want to talk about two different things. You give the pizza example, which I really like, but then you do acknowledge that there are different like dopamine receptors in different people's brains that may make you more susceptible to addiction. So can you talk about where you lie in all that?
0: Sure. Cause I'll clarify it can, if you have like, like for example, yes. One of the things that current research cites as a reason for the disease idea is If you were to happen to, say, to have more type 4 dopamine receptors, then an opiate or something is going to be more pleasurable to you. But pleasure does not equal addiction. And this is where, this is my dividing line, right? Because if pleasure equaled addiction, anybody, anybody that did mainline heroin, anybody that did cocaine, anybody that did meth, anybody that did anything that hits really hard would be automatically addicted to it. And that's simply not the case, right? When you understand the psychology of what goes on, and that was like, under this was during my undergrad process. When you start getting into cognitive psychology and social psychology and developmental psychology and biological psychology, you understand like how the programming works and that the brain your psyche your ego that inner voice is actually driving you to avoid pain three times more than it is to chase pleasure so if you understand that concept of it then when you are using you're not using it when you're in addicted state the use isn't to get high because it's pleasurable the use is used to avoid the pain of whatever that is in your life. And that's why I say, if you tell me your drug of choice, I can tell you what you're running from. Really? Yeah. Yes. This is a whole, I would love to do a postdoctoral study on this to prove that this is true. I don't know if anybody would actually fund it because the medical model would be destroyed by it, but...
1: Can we test that with me?
0: Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we can can run down that that rabbit hole if you wish.
1: So... My drugs of choice were meth and heroin, specifically IV use. If I could find the perfect balance of the two with IV use, what would you say was I was running from?
0: Any type of opiate is pain. Psychological pain, emotional pain, physical pain, combination thereof. Spiritual pain. Any type of upper is I don't like my life, right? Like the idea of you wake up one day and you're like, oh my God, this can't be my life. There has to be more to life than this. This can't be it. This this isn't me. I feel like I'm living somebody else's life. I did not end up here. And the heroin, like I said, the majority, we have 40 years of correlational research that shows this. If you're sexually abused, physically abused, emotionally abused, or combination thereof, you're at like an 87% higher chance of using as an adult. Like we know this, <laughs> right? And that's why I say it, like, it's not genetic in how we think it is or how they try to push it forward that, oh, well, their parents were you know, addicts, so they're an addict. Be like, well, looks, let's look at the social dynamic. How much loving and acceptance was going on? How many normal things were going on on a regular basis? How much emotional support was there from family members who were either raging or faded out? Right. Like it's the antithesis of what you would need for healthy development. Right. Like what we know today as if you want a child to have a really good chance at further success, this is the emotional support they need. This is the structure. This is the parenting that they need. And if the parents are in active addiction, there is no parenting. Right. Like it's the antithesis of parenting. Right. Like so it's not genetic in that. Well, there was some genetic component in your parents' life. So you inherited that. But it is in that, okay, well, we know that it's not nurture versus nature. It is nurture and nature. So if you didn't receive the nurturing that you needed and the environment didn't provide the support that you needed, where's the shocker that you went off the rails, right? So I don't know if that answers it, but it's, yes, you can have things to make things more ad- addictive, right? Like nicotine is addictive, but that doesn't mean just because you smoke a cigarette that you're going to be addicted to nicotine, right? Like the addictiveness does not equal addiction. That is not an equal straight across correlation.
1: So how would we explain an addict who did have a nurtured parental upbringing and environment and was provided for and becomes an addict anyway?
0: So I've actually run into a handful of those that are like, Chad, like I didn't have a bad, I didn't have a bad childhood. I wasn't abused. No one beat me, this type of thing, right? You're talking to
1: one right now. It's the same thing. Okay, I've never got hurt.
0: So we can have, I'll use myself as an example because it was, my mom was not trying to do this, but like if I didn't make straight A's, I got talked to, right? So what I learned was unless I made straight A's, I wasn't enough, right? So even in a good nurturing environment, we can still be, based on any number of cognitive distortions that we create, about 99% of everybody I deal with in all facets of mental health is some form of I'm not enough. I'm not tall enough, smart enough, successful enough, sexy enough, young enough thin enough. My teeth aren't wide enough. Hair isn't straight. Like there's, that is our current epidemic pandemic is we're not enough. So it is resounded in that. So even if you weren't abused, even if you weren't beaten up, even if whatever, for whatever reason, whether it was perceived. So it doesn't even have to be real. It can just be your perception of somebody's response to you to the point of my mom's just wanting me to do well in school. She's just wanting me to do well in the future. But how I took that was if I don't make straight A's, then I'm not good enough for her. I've got to go above and beyond to be okay.
1: That's fair. I totally buy that. That makes sense to me that there can be all of these things that we perceive and it doesn't have to look like, because when you hear trauma, you think somebody getting hurt you know something like that but there can be all sorts of things that leave these marks or leave these voids that don't necessarily look like trauma on the outside right
0: yeah and they don't have to be true right like that's the thing with your, our brains right like that's the scary part is understanding human development most kids have their world view by the age of like 6 We might still be believing in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, but we also understand how the world works and how we fit within the world during that time period. And unless we learn to change them, unless somebody else comes up and says, hey, Santa is not a real thing, right? Unless someone challenges our belief, we just continue to believe. Yeah, I'm not enough, right? Like I brought mommy this cool little picture and she shunned me away and therefore I suck at art. And it was just that mom was on the phone and busy at the time, but that's not how we took it. It can be something that small in point of fact, but like that can create an entire paradigm shift in how you see you and how you feel about the world around you.
1: But like that makes life and childhood. And I know what you're saying is true. That makes life and childhood so treacherous. (laughs) Like You know what I mean? Like being a human being is treacherous. Like there's just so much shit that can go wrong and that can produce these maladaptive behaviors that land us somewhere where it's like, how did I get here? This is not my life. So how would someone as an adult start undoing some of this damage, be it huge, recognizable stereotypical trauma, or be it perceived traumas as a kid, you know, say we're past our 60 day point, right? We're at Chad's ranch. We're past the 60 day point. How does one start the process of healing?
0: Slow down. Just breathe. Like we can't become aware of what's going on in our life until we get out of fight or flight. When we are in fight or flight, we are truly stupid, right? Like that's I've done an entire like it took up two wall-sized dry erase boards of the flow chart of what happens both to your emotional regulation, your perception, your dopamine, the whole mind, just from chronic stress, right? Like when I say I can write a book on stress, like I I mean that, like we ignore it, but it is literally destroying us from the inside out, right? Like that is the science of psychoneuroimmunology, right? Like that is the science of stress will kill you. So to become aware of things, we must first get out of fight or flight so we can become Aware of things. And by what, like, an example of that is, is you're not hardwired to be critically thinking when you're stressed. If T Rex is chasing you or a lion is chasing you across the Serengeti, you aren't wired to stop and be like, I wonder if he ate before he caught me. (laughs) Like, is he full? Is he just going to run past me? That's not how we're wired, right? We're not wired to use our critical thinking skills. We are wired to fight flight or freeze when we're in chronic stress. So truly, like, I mean, I've heard this in other people's talks and stuff in the past. And when they're like, just breathe, I'm like, that's such bullshit. <laughs> right? Like, like, what is that going to do? But when you truly understand that when you live in chronic stress, which is most of us, I mean, watch the news for two minutes, scroll through social media for a minute or two, right? Like most of it is extreme judgment, even if it's not stress, like, like, oh my God, stress. It's still stress. That person's prettier than I am. Oh my God, I can't believe they're doing this. Right. Like it's still stress. So to get out of that and to truly allow your body to like reset, and then you become how we're supposed to be, right? Like we are the current byproduct of a million to 5 million years of evolution, depending on which historian you talk to. Well, We're only the product of that because our ancestors were innovative. They were creative. They were problem solvers. They were critical thinkers. But their life was much more realistic. They were chased by a tiger, and then they went back to living their life if they lived. Right now, our tiger is selling your business, your relationship, your social media, the news, your next door neighbor, your drive to work, work itself the coworker across, right? Like we are constantly bombarded by all these threats and we never take the time to truly de-stress, to truly reset. And that's why some people, to include myself, have these amazing ideas while taking a shower because I'm not in fight or flight while I'm taking a shower. You're doing a mundane task, which is just enough cognition to realize that, yes, I'm using my shampoo and not my conditioner yet but allows your brain to do what it does naturally, right? There's an idea, like right now, for you, like other side of this camera, whoever this is, watching it as well, close your eyes and think about, like, where are you most at peace? Like, a specific point. It can be a beach, mountaintop, overlook, whatever. Where do you find, like, man, this is... I could just stay here forever. Where do you find that peace? Where's that for you?
1: I feel like my answer's wrong. No. For me, it's when I'm teaching spin. Mm. Like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Can that be right though? Because I'm not Yes. Spinning. Oh yeah. But I'm am-
0: Oh yeah. We're, okay. There's no such thing as right or wrong. Okay. But yes, that can be right. Okay.
1: When I'm teaching spin is when I'm the most at peace.
0: Okay. Well, and this should make perfect sense and you can advocate if it does. What I'm going to suggest for true freedom for you and everybody listening is that sense of peace is possible 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, even if you're not teaching spin. The reason that thing, that place, that activity gives you such peace, it's in that moment that you're not judging the shit out of you and the world around you. Yes, that is true. Which is allowing you to be peaceful.
1: Yes, that is true. I feel super connected in that moment and in my element and connected with the people around me.
0: Yes, everything is right and nothing is wrong. Yes? Yeah. So when we're not at peace and we're trying to find peace, the only thing that needs to happen is we need to quit judging that it's wrong.
1: Okay. And that's a perception issue, like you said.
0: 1000%. Now, as others advocate, that doesn't mean that it's not, that it can't be painful or challenging or difficult or outside of your preference, right? Like that doesn't mean that it's all unicorns, fairies, and butterflies, but you yourself stop suffering when you quit judging that what's going on is wrong. Just like myself on the sidewalk in the rain, my suffering stopped on a dime as soon as what I was doing wasn't wrong.
1: Okay. Well, and like me in that moment, when I realized I wasn't dope sick, I was so judging of the fact that I was 35 living in this sober living on a couch, smoking cigarette butts that, and I remember they all smoked menthol. And I was like, Ugh, it's not even good ones. And I had been judging that obviously, you know? Yes,
0: a hundred percent. And I
1: flipped like my perception of that.
0: To wrap it up, how do you de-stress, breathe in the moments, and realize that at this moment, nothing is actually wrong?
1: So we start by de-stressing. Again, we're at Chad's ranch. Mm-hmm. We start by de-stressing.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you recommend different types of therapy as well once you're in that space? So once you've regulated you know, nutrition, sleep, fitness, et cetera. At what point do you start unpacking? Like we were talking about like the perceived traumas.
0: So like everybody, like as a therapist, I've been doing it for almost 14 years now. Everybody asks, like, what do you, you know, what model do you follow? And I'm like, okay, so I am a, (laughs) I use positive psychology, transpersonal psychology CBT, DBT, REBT, LETA, IFSP, MI—like I use the entire alphabet soup. Okay,
1: I thought you were really starting to list one. I was like, holy shit, I don't know what this is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, the key, though, is like, why do I use those? I use them to question somebody else's belief. That's what I'm creating is is what I tongue in cheek call BS therapy for belief systems therapy. Because that's the only thing that's actually changing in any of that, right? Like when you can have a lady, and I've had this happen, you know, she struggled with theoretically clinical depression for years and anxiety and, you know, uh, weight issues and eating issues and all this good jazz. And in one session, she can be healthy. Did I fix her or did she just change a belief? The belief was literally like she was struggling because like all this trauma and pain had happened 10 years beforehand. And she had been struggling with it since. And she's, you know, abused, very poor relationship, this and that. And she's sitting there and very, you know, first session. So I just let her talk through it all and let her get it all out. And then she's like, Chad, she's like, I just, uh, I just don't know how I'm going to get through all this. And all I did was lean forward and asked or stated, you already have. And at first it looked like I slapped her in the face (laughs) because she was obviously wanting or expecting a different answer than that. And then she looked puzzled and then she started crying and laughing. And we talked a half a dozen more times and that was that. She literally, her psyche was so embedded in this is who she was. This was her struggle. This was part of her validation. This was part of her own identity. And once she realized that she had already overcome this, that which she was fearing, it all just went away. Santa isn't real.
1: So even if something is happening currently, not in your past, the fact that you're just able to sit there and verbalize it to someone inherently shows That you are managing it because there you are talking about it.
0: To a point, right? Like that's part of like acceptance and commitment therapy, right? Act. This is the way it is. And you saying that this is the way it shouldn't be is in part causing your anxiety, your depression, your anger, whatever it is. So part of it is it's a Buddhist idea, right? Like the world is pain. Suffering is optional, so, yes, what you're going through can be painful. It can be outside of your preferences. It can be extremely challenging. But which is more difficult to have that actual thing or to have that actual thing and be upset that that thing is going on?
1: That's fair. <laughs> it's like you're
0: right. Like, that. yeah,
1: I heard that once before and I've forgotten that. It's like when you're afraid about something that might happen in the future that has not happened yet, you think it's going to, it might, it might, it might. You're suffering twice now.
0: 100%.
1: And when it maybe happens. Yes. Which it may.
0: And the, the freedom is, again, and this is just the future, we can't control it and you can't dictate it. You can't predict it. You can forecast, but you can't say that this is what's going to happen. So the freedom resides in instead of dwelling on the worst case scenario, why don't we dwell on what we'd like to happen, right? That is the freedom in it. We're not wired to pay attention to the positive. We are wired to pay attention to the negative because paying attention to the negative is what keeps us alive. So it is a conscious choice. And that again, to the question a little bit ago about like how to do this is just breathe, just stop and breathe, get out of fight or flight, realize that yes, could this happen? Yes, it could. But what you're wanting to happen could also happen as well
1: that seems like a really simple, easy way to kind of get out of. I'm not a, you know, 12 steps got all those cheesy acronyms. A lot of them I hate, but there's one I like, which is for fear. Although I don't think this is a 12 step thing actually, but fear, future events already ruined. Mm, I like that. That's that's probably my primary fear is a future event is already ruined. It hasn't happened yet, you know, but you're right.
0: Right, Best case scenario
1: could also happen.
0: 1000%. And even, even if, The worst case scenario is what happens, how you travel between now and that event is dictated by what you choose to believe. Explain that. So this is how I use it in my, in therapy, right? Like, so talking to a patient and be like, okay, so because, you know, I have your address right here, I know where you live. And in 30 days, I'm going to come hit you in the foot with a hammer. (laughs) Now, For the next 30 days, you can either tell everyone you know about this crazy ass therapist that's going to come hit you in the foot with a hammer and like he's psycho and what am I going to do and blow up about it and be all worried and angry and upset, or you can live every day to its fullest, live, laugh, love every day. And then in 30 days, I still hit you with a hammer, which is a better way of living.
1: Right. Because either way, the 30 days are going to, pa- either way, the event is going to happen. And then how do you live in the meantime?
0: Right. 100%. Right. And since we don't know, it seems to be a much better choice to at least live in a positive now. And then if whatever happens, happens, you're going to have to deal with it either way. But knowing what we know about stress and critical thinking and innovation and problem solving skills if it were actually to go sideways and we weren't already stressed about it we would have better tools to manage it
1: because we hadn't been living in stress leading up to it
0: 100% Ugh,
1: that's such an that's such i don't want to say better but it's kind of better that's like a better way to live but it's really yes. hard i'm very bad well, at yes. that
0: <laughs> well it's because again we are hardwired to pay attention to the negative And that's, again, understanding how we actually are. When you understand human psychology, unraveling mental health and addiction is, it's more of a like, duh, like, of course, this is where we are, right? If you understand that 95% of your day is unconscious and subconscious thoughts, you're not actually thinking about what you're thinking about. You're running on automatic old routines. That's one of the reasons it's so hard to change is because You're trying to change your entire life with 5% of your attention, which is why breathing and meditation and focus and learning how to get more of that under your control is so imperative. That's number one. But also understand that 80 to 90% of your thoughts are the same thoughts as yesterday, which is why we don't make things change because we're thinking about the same shit. But 80% of those are negative, which is why we tend to be so negative because we just keep reliving those same negative things. Oh, this is going to happen this negative thing is going to happen. Well, this negative thing is going to happen in the same way, just in a slightly different situation, right? Like we just keep perpetuating our past and wondering why things in our life aren't changing. So
1: how can we change some of our thoughts? You mentioned meditation and you said in the book, very briefly, you said meditation really affects the prefrontal cortex. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Ah. Yes, 100 yes. So yeah, yeah. is that how we would start to change the 80% of the thoughts that we're, or the 90% of the thoughts that we're having all the time, all the time, all the time? Like, how do we change that?
0: So that's, um, I'm actually doing a master's class on that tonight, that very thing, because that is the magic of meditation. Everybody thinks of meditation, well, not everybody, but most people, when they think of meditation, they think of like the lotus position and like, hmm, and peace and all like kind of jazz. And that is part of it. Like de-stressing is definitely part of it. But the magic of meditation is learning to get into your subconscious programming, which is getting into a state of theta, which is basically self-hypnosis, right? Like that's that dream state where you're the passenger of the car, hopefully not the driver, although it has happened in the past. You're awake, but not really. Like, you know, stuff's going on. You can hear the conversation of the radio, but you're also kind of daydreaming at the same time. Like that's theta. Now, when you can get into Theta and realize you're in Theta, that's like getting into a computer programming and changing the source code. So the wonderful part of our brain and the difficult part of our brain is that it doesn't know the difference between an actual lived experience and an imagined experience, which is why we can have nightmares, which is why we can have sexual fantasies. They're not real, but they feel real. So you get into a meditative state. You start by breathing, you center, you calm down. You get your focus and attention on how do you want to live? What does that look like? What does that sound like? What does that taste like? And then have a sexual fantasy, if you will, about how you want to be. And you will literally start creating the neurological wiring to create the person you're wanting to be without being that person yet. And some people think that that's an impossibility, but actors do it all the time. Are we not different people around our spouses, or your boss, or a religious leader, or kids, or grandparents? We already act differently in our world. All we're doing is creating one more psyche of someone we haven't been yet, but we're making it real enough in the brain to literally have the neurons fire and wire together to create ways of looking at life, ways of reacting to life, that are already hardwired in so when that event actually happens you have a real hardwired reaction of how you want to react so that subconscious programming is what you're installing because that's what we run on
1: i love that so we can actually change our software or update <laughs> we need to need to update if we're running on like aol <laughs> Update yes, yourself.
0: One hundred percent. So, yeah, one hundred. What
1: type of meditation routine would you recommend for a beginner? Where do they start, and what would you say? How do we start?
0: So, there's two things that I have all my patients do, and they they start day one because until you have some ability to focus. None of this matters because most of us have the monkey brain, right? Like it's jumping around or like a kid running around at Walmart. Like it's just running around everywhere, tearing stuff up. Start counting your breaths. That's number one. Every, and I mean, every time you're conscious of it, sitting at a red light, standing in the grocery store, cleaning the toilet, brushing your teeth at night, whatever. When you are conscious of, oh yeah, Chad said, I need to be counting my breaths. Just count your breaths. Whatever you're doing, you don't have to say it out loud. You breathe in, you breathe out, in your head, there's one. Breathe in, breathe out, head, there's two. Breathe in, breathe out, head, there's three. Just start paying attention to you. That will do tons of stuff, just that in and of itself. The other is start programming yourself to do the work. So in the beginning, if you don't take any time to do any type of mindfulness or meditation or breathing stuff, sit down for 30 seconds. Put it on your watch that at 3.01, I'm going to sit down for 30 seconds. And if you can do that, because people have a hard time just doing that, if you can do that next time, do it for two minutes. Next time, do it for five minutes, because part of the process is just doing the work. Just sit down, sit down, shut up. Don't touch your phone. Don't text, don't email, don't tweet. Just sit.
1: So just programming, just, just simply the work into your day over time.
0: Yes. Right. Because if you, and this is, it's just because of, you know, again, 14 years of trying to help people do this very thing. I'm like, Hey, you know, how much meditation did you get in? I didn't, uh, how many breathing rounds did you get this week? I didn't Right, like, cause it's not what you normally do. So in the beginning, it is literally just taking the moment to sit, even if it's just for 30 seconds, just sit and breathe for 30 seconds take three repetitive deep breaths. That'll get you started. Because if you're not going to do that, you're not going to do anything else I'm going to talk about yet. I mean, that, and that's the reality, right? Okay. So that's truly where it starts is just breathe and count your breaths. Because in order to create that whole sexual fantasy, you got to be able to keep your attention where you want and not have it... You're creating it. Did I leave the stove on? Is the coffee pot? What am I going to have to do? Did I pay this bill yet? Right? Like you've got to not be able to go wherever your mind is pulling you and use the prefrontal cortex, which is what it was designed for, to think higher than you feel and actually create what you want instead of being a slave to your thoughts and emotions.
1: I love that. I've never heard that to just start counting your breath at any time during the day to start getting in the practice. I've never heard that. I've certainly heard counting your breath when you sit down to meditate, but not just throughout the day, because I feel like that would also just pull you back into being in the present moment, you know, actually force you to breathe, right? Like there's a variety of things that that would start to do to connect you with yourself. So say somebody is still using or an active addiction and we don't have Chad's ranch, right? That's not actually a thing. So where does someone start if they live in Mississippi and they need to quit shooting meth?
0: So It has been my experience thus far that the most empowering choice everybody can make, if you really want to change your life, you must swallow two major horse pills. One is, no one's coming to save you. Two is, you are responsible for where you are today. When you truly embrace that, one, that can be scary as hell. Two You can start beating yourself up for like, oh my God, I've allowed this. Yes, you have. But that means that you don't have to wait on anybody to start making changes in your life. If it's anybody else's fault, you've got to wait for them to change. You got to wait for them to come save you. If no one's coming to save you and you are where you are in life due to your ultimately your choices. Yes, circumstances can mitigate things or enhance things or create options, But ultimately, you are still where you are because of your choices or lack thereof. When we own that, that means that if I got me here today, that means as soon as I start turning the wheel a different direction, I can start going in a different direction. I don't have to wait for someone else to agree. I don't have to wait for someone else to change. I don't have to wait for X, Y, or Z. I can start doing something about it today. So that's what I would advocate is basically for a psychology term, it's lose the victim mentality and embrace a growth mindset. Okay. So this is where you are. Yesterday doesn't matter. Tomorrow is not here. What are you going to do today? My patients are so tired of me saying that. <laughs> Cause that's like, they'll be like, Oh my God, this happened and this happened and this happened. And all my neighbor did this and my parents did this and my kid did this and like whatever. And I'll listen to it all and be like, that's fascinating. What are you going to do about it? Cause that's all that really matters. We get so wrapped up in the psychology of our life that we think our thinking is our life, but it's not. Your thoughts are just that. Your emotions are just that. They're real, but can you reach into your purse or your pocket and hand me some anxiety? Yeah, it's all between your ears. And if it's in between your ears, you can choose to redirect it. It is not easy. And that's why the mental practice, that's why the mental work, that's why learning to think higher than you feel. And it is a skill. Most people do not think higher than they feel. They think how they feel. I wake up today and I'm tired. That's immediately how I start thinking, ah, it's going to be a suck day. I got to do all this stuff. Maybe I'll just cancel a few people and just go back. to. I'm just going to hit snooze. I'm going to call in sick, right? You immediately start thinking how you feel instead of waking up, feeling tired, thinking I'm going to need two Red Bulls today because I got a lot of shit to do. I need to get right into my workout. I'm just going to fall out of the bed, onto the floor, and start doing push-ups because I got to get some blood moving because I feel like shit today. That's thinking higher than you feel. Emotions, and this is where most people get stuck. Emotions are supposed to be just sensory information. They're not supposed to be directives. You feel hot. You feel cold. You feel hungry. You feel tired. You feel that way, and then you react. If you choose, you feel a little hot, are you gonna go turn up the AC? Maybe I'll wait till the end of the interview. You feel cold. Maybe I'll put on a scarf before the interview's over. You feel hungry. I'm sure I got a snack around here somewhere or I'll just wait. You feel anxious. You feel depressed. You feel angry. It is just sensory information. There is something in your world that your psyche is saying, hey, you might want to pay attention to this, but you don't have to react. And you definitely don't have to react right this minute. And that's the, in logotherapy, therapy, right? Uh, Viktor Frankl, one of the things he talked about is between the event and your reaction, there is a space. And within that space resides your freedom. That's a choice.
1: I love that analogy because all of those things you said are much easier to choose to not, like I am a little bit cold, right? And I'm drinking my thingy. In my shape is making mm-hmm. me colder, but yeah. we're, you know, it's an hour, you know, or it's an hour and 10, we're going to wrap up soon. I don't need to stop this and break contact and get it. I'm choosing, I don't need to grab a jacket right now. And I love that we could look at anxiety in the same way. Like I'm cold, but I don't have to do whatever. If I'm anxious, I don't have to do whatever. I don't have to scroll TikTok for an hour because I'm anxious. I don't have to do that. It's just information, not a directive.
0: Correct. That's the way it's supposed to be. And then you can be like, okay, well, I'm anxious. There's something going on in my world. What do I need to do about that, right? Again, okay, so I feel depressed. I feel anxious. I feel angry. Okay, well, what are you going to do about it? Because that's the only thing that matters. And what are you going to do about it right now? You can't do something about it in 10 minutes. You can, but that's something else you can do in 10 minutes, right? Like that's a future thing. You're not there yet. We're never in our future and we can't fix the past. So why do we get so wrapped up around the axle about those very things?
1: So my last question, and then we'll wrap up. Sure. Yeah, yeah, fire away. So, because I know that you've said that you're not necessarily anti-12-step, there are some benefit to it, like going to meetings, stuff like that. Again, same example, someone who lives in, I don't know why I'm picking Mississippi today, but Mississippi. <laughs> AA is what's there. NA is what's there. Do you recommend going or how would someone start a recovery process in their local neighborhood?
0: I am an advocate of positive anything is better than negative nothing. Okay. Right? Having some support, having some direction can be better than not having any. However, saying that, 75% of people in addiction recover all by themselves without any professional help, to include that of AA and NA. So you can do a group. You can go to AA. But I also advocate, just like I do in my book, none of this stuff that I'm talking about is like highly classified government documents. I didn't translate any of it out of Aramaic or Sanskrit, right, like educate yourself. There are tons of really good speakers out there. There are tons of, you can get free textbooks on PDF, like you can learn psychology all by yourself if you wanted. In today's world, there is information all around you And I would advocate, because I know someone, I heard it in my head already, yeah, but some of that's bad. So is some of the information in AA. So is some of the information from your sponsor, right? But at least start learning something. I I talk to my patients all the time. I'm like, this is your issue. I'm good. (laughs) Like, what have you read this week? Like, I've read four papers to just expand my own knowledge. How much have you read this week about your issue? Learn about it. Learn about addiction. I'm amazed at how many people in addiction don't know anything about addiction except what they can spew back from what someone else has said about it, right? So educate yourself. You can learn on YouTube. You can learn on, watch impact theory, watch TED Talks. I mean, there's like a million different TED Talks on everything from addiction to to anxiety, to depression, PTSD, Right. And those are theoretically some of the better stuff out there. They're experts in their field talking about cutting edge stuff in their field. So go to a meeting, balance some of that meeting with some of your own research. Don't be afraid to question and don't take anything to include my stuff at face value. Learn, empower yourself. Right. Like that's that growth mindset. Don't just do what I say because I said do it. Learn about it. And then if what I say jives with what you're learning, apply it.
1: So when they are doing 12 step efficacy studies, how do you do that? Because it's anonymous and I've never been asked in my life. No one has ever, cause I've gone to four rehabs. I failed out of each one. So if you're going by rehab, I would be a loss. I would be a failed statistic. But I got eight years and no one has ever asked me, my husband or anybody else. I know in 12 step, which is a lot of people. I've been doing this for a long time, longer than eight years. I'm like, I never asked. I'm like, has anybody ever like called you or like got you outside of a meeting and said, Hey, how's this working? How do they measure the effectiveness of 12 step?
0: In a very, very, very biased manner. Yeah. Because they can only talk to the people that are currently in the rooms and something that I've learned painfully. So research on humans is very difficult. Now do research on humans and mental health, and it's extremely difficult. Now do research with humans and mental health with addiction issues, and you need an act of Congress to do that study. So the couple that have been done were on small groups, and they talk to the people that are in the rooms. And of course, those that are in the rooms tend to like it and tend to be doing pretty well. And that is the exact issue, is in real science you have follow-ups you find those people that were in it you do a larger search within the population right like you like to do a real thing on AA you would want one in every state you would want independent studies for men and women you would want independent studies for the different age brackets and only then You could say that it was correlational because the human construct is simply too complex to say that, yes, their recovery was just based on AA because there's too many other factors, right? right? Like that's, again, like I had this great idea, like I was going to do my study for the, you know, your drug of choice and I can tell you what you're running from too many factors, too many factors to be able to do a true clinical study and narrow it down to this is the thing, or this is not the thing because you can't control for all the other variables. Right. So it is very biased. It is not a real picture of the world. It is a snapshot of that group at that time with that facilitator. Okay.
1: But there have been a few studies with AA groups in different places where they have been able to speak to the people. And to me though, what you just said, I take from that more positive than negative because you hear so often people are like, like, I hate this. There's this one guy. We've been battling about this for years in one of my HA meetings. Every time he shares, he's got like 12 years. And every time he shares, he sits he stands up and he's like, Look around the room, you know, that look to your left, look to your right. One of them is gonna die. You know, there's no one here from when I started, blah, blah, blah. And I used to think. That And the reason I think that that's so fucking dangerous is because when I was there and using, I would have thought I would have been that person. I'm like, you're telling me it doesn't really work. Like, I don't like the stats on how hard it is to get clean because what I believe is that 100% of the people that want to have a chance. Every single person has a chance. Every single person. No one is destined to die. And so Correct. what you just said, answer is kind of something I've always wondered, which is you cannot really quantify this. Now, I do believe that 12 step is successful because it's worked for me, but I believe you can't really quantify any of these studies on addiction. And so I think the dismal numbers are doing people that are still actively using a great disservice because that does two things. One, I'll probably fail. And another, and I can tell you as, as someone that in active addiction used every excuse in the book. That was one of them. Mm-hmm. Well, pretty oh, hard
0: anyway. And real quick, I know we're, we're running uh, close on time, but there's doing timelines with people to help them see that where it'd be like, okay, so when did you use your first drug? I started when I was nine. I started when I was ten. I started when I was eleven. Well, what did you use? I did this. Okay. What what did that progress to? Oh, well, I did this and that. And then when did you switch to something else? Well, I tried this at this age, and then I tried this at this age. Okay. And you walk them all the way up until where they are now, right? And you have this timeline on the board. And then I'm like, okay, so where on that timeline did you need it to get out of bed? And they're like, oh, about right here. And I'm like, okay. So I point out two things. I draw an arrow behind that line, and I'm like, how was life? right in here. And the summation of that answer is it was shit. And then I point out, okay, so if you were using from here to here on a regular basis, but didn't need it to get out of bed, do you think it was the drug or do you think it was life? Right? And that helps them see that, yes, I mean, it'd be really hard to be addicted to heroin if you've never used heroin, right? Like, I will fully admit that. But I also just from experience and helping people become truly free the issue isn't just the heroin it is what's what perpetuated it what hurt so bad inside that that was the only thing that mitigated that pain yeah right? so that
1: makes sense that's that right. makes sense yeah you know what's interesting is that a step one the way that we do it with my sponsor is a timeline also of at what age did you do the first drug at what age? But our purpose in looking at that is to show escalating consequences to the use. But it's a timeline
0: also. Nice. See, I use it for the instead of escalating consequences, I look at as so imagine if you would have dealt with whatever was haunting you here instead of letting it compound to now you have this that was bothering you and now these things are bothering you. And then now these things are bothering you on top of all those other things and now life really went sideways and it's almost like you're drowning because you've got a lifetime of stuff that you've been dragging behind right. you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where my work is, is you can't change it. But as soon as you don't care about it, right? like as soon as it doesn't own you, you're free. And that's, that was my story in the back of a homeless, in the back of a truck next to a river. I was just free.
1: So where could people connect with you, your social media, your book, where can people find you if they want to connect with you further?
0: So you can find my book on Amazon under uh, Dr. Chad Davis, the 12 Steps 2.0. I have a website that I've had up for eight years, nine years now called Fearless Recovery. It's at www.fearlessrecovery.weebly because it's a blog site.com. And is currently under mental remodeling, because that's what I feel like I do. I just help people remodel their mental state. And the same for Instagram, at mental remodeling. And the overall message, to include the the title page of my website, is I just want to help people create a life that they don't need a vacation from.
1: I love that. I think that 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 makes sense, you know? So, well thank you so much for your time I really 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 appreciate it I think that my audience is getting I got a lot from what you said literally just like sitting here there was actually something I was anxious about while we were talking and I realized you know what if that thing happens I still will have to deal with it when we're done but I could have also been mad at myself for being distracted during the interview so I actually literally used that like while we were talking so I appreciate it
0: oh, <laughs> hey, yeah you're very welcome